Our scripture text this morning is in John 14, verses 8 through 14. And so I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14, and we will begin reading in verse 8. John 14, beginning in verse 8. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now in these few verses, we see once again the unity uh, which our Lord Jesus Christ has with God the Father. And we also see the way in which Christ answers the prayers which are made in His name. And so those will be our two main points for this morning. That Christ is one with the Father and Christ answers prayers that are made in His name. Christ is one with the Father. Christ answers the prayers which are made in His name. And so Jesus here in John 14 had been saying to the disciples that no one comes to the Father but by Him and that if they had known Him, they would know the Father, that in fact they had known the Father and had seen Him. That's what had transpired prior to verse 8. And then in verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now Philip had certainly heard the words that Jesus had just said, but evidently he did not grasp the meaning of them. Jesus had just said that in seeing Him, Knowing him, they had seen and known the Father. And then Philip asks for that very thing, the very thing that Jesus said that they already had, a sight of the Father. It's no wonder then that Jesus responds as he did and pressed the point that he had been making. He says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Now on the basis of Jesus' words earlier there in verse 7, it's clear that Jesus views the disciples as having known him, and therefore they both knew the Father and had seen the Father. And the implication of Jesus' question to Philip there in verse 9 is that, yes, indeed, Philip had come to know him. Philip had followed Jesus throughout the time of his earthly ministry, and John even gives us the account of how Jesus called Philip to follow him in John chapter 1, verse 43 and following. And Philip, as you may recall, went and found Nathanael and proclaimed even right then to Nathanael at the beginning of his following after Jesus. He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. This is Philip who says this at the beginning of John's gospel, and yet now he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Even from the beginning, Philip had known that Jesus of Nazareth was the one about whom the prophets and Moses had written. How much more so should he have known that by the time we get to John 14? And so the implied answer to Jesus' question there in verse 9 is yes. Of course, Philip had come to know Jesus after Jesus had been with them for so long. And so what that means then is that Philip had seen the Father and had come to know the Father, just as Jesus had already stated there in verse 7. And so Jesus follows up that question and presses the point home quite clearly. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, let's take stock of this. On the one hand, while it might seem somewhat easy for us to to beat up on Philip and say, come on now, what's the problem? Jesus told you that to see him was to see the Father. Can't you just accept that and say, yes, sir, and move along? What are you doing by asking the kind of question that you asked? But if you and I were to try putting ourselves in Philip's place that night in the upper room, we might be able to understand some of his confusion. Unlike Philip, you and I have the benefit of the completed canon of the New Testament and nearly 2,000 years of Christian reflection upon the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. As Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity is drilled into us, that there is one and only one God, and yet within the Godhead there are three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This is drilled into us, or if it isn't, it ought to be, because this is of utmost importance in Christianity. Philip, unlike us, didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of Christian reflection on the incarnation, the deity of Christ, and the doctrine of the Trinity, and so on. And so on the one hand, we should not judge him too harshly. But on the other hand, as Jesus' words to him indicate, there is a bit of a problem here going on in his understanding. Jesus' words of question in verse 10 are rhetorical. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? When he asks the question in that way, he makes it clear that at least Philip should have believed that. Jesus says that his words are not spoken on his own initiative, but that the Father abiding in him is doing his works. And then in verse 11, Jesus appeals to his works as being evidence that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. In other words, the miracles that Jesus had done all throughout his ministry were performed in unity with the Father. Therefore, they pointed to his unity with the Father. Another way of saying that would be to say that the miracles of Jesus point to his deity, that he is true God just as the Father is God. And this is because the miracles that Jesus did were unique. And we saw this a few months ago when we considered John, uh, the text with John 10.25, the works that Jesus did in his Father's name testified of him, that he is God, that he is one with the Father. These miracles were unique in that Jesus didn't need to ask the Father to work a miracle in order for a wonder to be performed. He did not need to command in the name of the Father as 
The apostles would later invoke his name in the working of miracles. He himself simply said the word by his own authority, and the miracle was done. The general pattern that we see in the miracles of Jesus were in this way different from the, at least the general pattern that we see in the prophets and later in the apostles. The miracles of Jesus were the miracles of one who had power and authority in himself. These were the works of one who was God in the flesh. The point here, as Jesus is making it to Philip, was that he himself testifies of this reality that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, and the works also that he did testify to this reality as well. Jesus speaks the truth. The works that Jesus performs verify the truth. For someone who had been with Jesus someone who had believed in Jesus, someone who had heard and trusted Jesus' teaching and had seen his miracles, there was really no fair way of escaping the conclusion that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. Jesus had said this, Jesus' works verified it. And these words of of Jesus here in these verses are, are very deep and they are important. They inform our theology of the Trinity, they inform our Christology, our our doctrine of, of Christ, of who Jesus is. And Augustine pointed out that the words of verse 10 stand opposed to two opposite errors, modalism and, and Arianism. Modalism is the teaching that there is no distinction between the persons of the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are simply different modes that in, in which God reveals himself to mankind, but that they are not eternally distinct uh, persons within the Godhead. If we were to, to try to boil modalism down to a single phrase, it would be this, that the Father is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. That there is no distinction between the persons. Or I heard a story once about a, a preacher who supposedly said, I just tell my people there was God the Father, he became God the Son, and now he's the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. And that is heresy. That is false teaching that destroys the foundation of Christianity because it's false teaching about who God is and who God has revealed himself to be. Now if that's modalism, that the Father is the Son, is the Holy Spirit, absolutely no distinction, Arianism would be in a way the opposite error. Arianism acknowledges the distinction between the Father and the Son for sure, but in doing so Arianism subordinates the Son to the Father. In other words, Arians do not believe the Son of God to be truly God. What was historically called Arianism is essentially the doctrinal position of the Jehovah's Witnesses of today, that the Son of God is not actually God, but rather is the first created being. And that, likewise, is heretical. If John could say in 1 John chapter 4 that every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist, then certainly the teaching that denies that Jesus is true God is likewise the spirit of the Antichrist. And so Augustine commented on verse 10, and he said, We are opposed by two different classes of heretics, who, by each of them holding to only one clause, run off, not in one, but opposite directions, and wander from the pathway of truth. While the Arians might grasp at the phrase where Jesus says he does not speak of himself, and might from that attempt to extrapolate and then 
exaggerate the distinction between the Father and the Son so as to say that the Son is a creature and not true God, the modalist, on the other hand, might grasp at the other phrase, that the Father within the Son does his works. And so say from that then that there is no distinction at all between the Father and the Son. But contrary to the opinions of the Arians on the one error or the modalists on the other error, both phrases of verse 10 are true. Though the Son of God is a distinct person from God the Father, nevertheless, he is equal to the Father and one with him, such that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And so our Lord says, The words which I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. There is a distinction between the Father and the Son, but yet they are one. Augustine spoke to both groups who had rejected the truth, and he said, In your wanderings, you have taken opposite directions. Midway between the two is the path you have left. You are a far longer distance apart from each other than from the very way you have both forsaken. Come hither, you from the one side and you from the other. Pass not across the one to the other, but come from both sides to us and make this the place of your mutual meeting. Now, I realize that as we think about our Christology here, our our doctrine of Christ and the relation of Christ to the Father, the error of modalism, the error of Arianism, there might be some who feel that this is just a bunch of technical theological stuff and has no bearing on life and godliness, practically speaking. Now, if that's what you're thinking this morning, please allow me to say that these things actually really do matter. And so Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus is telling us here in John 14 about himself and about God the Father. To know the Father and the Son is eternal life. Now I understand that knowing someone involves simply more than knowing facts about someone. I get that. But knowing someone certainly does not involve less than knowing facts about someone. If you can imagine a young man and a young woman going out to dinner on their first date and the, they're talking over dinner, and the young lady is telling her life story, right? Telling about her, her parents, her siblings, her family life growing up, the struggles that she's been through, the education that she has received, the kinds of things that she enjoys doing, and so on. And then the young man were to interrupt her and say, well, I don't really care too much about all of the facts and information. I just want to get to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't, I don't care about all of that. You can, you can see the disconnect there, I think. And so all of that to say that knowing someone actually does involve knowing facts about them. And there's an analogy here to be made in respect to knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is important. It is eternal life to know him. If you love Christ, why would you not care about what he has to say concerning himself? Why would you not want to know what he has revealed about his relationship with God the Father? How can you worship and serve him rightly if you don't care about what he has said about himself? So all of that to say, these things are important. And they matter for our relationship with God. And they matter for the well-being of our own souls. 
And that brings us then to our second point, which is Christ answers the prayers which are made in his name. In verse 12, Jesus shifts the conversation from the works that he has done to the works which those who believe in him will do. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Jesus had just been appealing to his works to prove that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And now Jesus says that those who believe in him will do the same works that he has done and will do even greater works than these. Now what does, what does Jesus mean by speaking in this way? Well, first of all, we need to be clear that this is not a blanket promise that all Christians of all times will do miracles like those that Jesus did. This is not a promise that all believers of all times will heal diseases, cast out demons, raise the dead, calm storms with a word, and so on. Even in the first century when the miraculous gifts were operative within the church, not every believer exercised these gifts. And so therefore we read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Now it's pretty clear if you read 1 Corinthians that the miraculous gifts were operative there in that context within the church at Corinth. But it's also pretty clear from Paul's words there that not every believer was gifted in those ways. And Paul was okay with that. And so it's clear then that Jesus did not mean that every believer would do the kinds of miraculous works that he did. That was never the case, even in the first century. And so on the one hand, I would see these words, for one, pointing toward the miraculous works of the apostles. These, these were the men who were in audience when these words were spoken. And so on the one hand, I think we see here the, the works of the apostles because they did, in fact, do the same kind of works that Jesus did, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, and so on. You read about that in the book of Acts. And I would also see these words as pointing to the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of souls by it. As wonderful as it is to be healed from blindness or to be healed from being deaf or mute, nevertheless, it's much greater to be reconciled with God and to have eternal life. As wonderful as it would be to receive a physical resurrection like Lazarus at the hands of Jesus or that of Dorcas at the hands of Peter in Acts chapter 9 or like Eutychus being raised by Paul in Acts chapter 20, as, as wonderful and miraculous as those works are, salvation is infinitely greater and infinitely better. And I think there is also something to be said about the scope and the effects of the works which were going to take place in the apostolic age if we compare them back to the works and ministry of Christ. So Jesus says here in verse 12 that those who believe will do the same and greater works than he did and note the reason why. What does it say there? Because I am going to the Father. Because I go to the Father. 
It's because Jesus is going to the Father that these greater works are going to be done. In other words, the ascension of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people, this is the reason why these same and greater works will be done by those who believe in him. And so just consider the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 32 and 33. He says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. And so Peter is preaching the gospel there on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people get saved, right? Thousands of people are baptized. And it was because Jesus was glorified and the Holy Spirit was poured out. This is why the apostles are able to do the same and greater works than Jesus did. And we must not not neglect to consider that the works of the apostles were greater in their earthly scope than the earthly works of Jesus were. It almost sounds sacrilegious to say it that way, but it's actually true. And Jesus actually said that it was going to happen right here. He said they will do greater works than he had done. And... Just, just think for a moment about the book of Acts. Do we have any hint in the Gospels that any of the sermons or teachings of Jesus produced the kind of response that Peter and the apostles received on the day of Pentecost or in the weeks following there in Jerusalem? I don't think we do. As a general rule, we don't see vast multitudes being cut to the heart by the teachings of Jesus and repenting and believing on the spot as you do on the day of Pentecost. We don't see in the ministry of Jesus what we see in Acts 6-7, where we're told that the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Paul described his ministry to the Thessalonians by saying that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1-5. And this was something different than the way in which our Lord was received. And the reason, as Jesus says here, the reason for the difference is Jesus says, because I go to the Father. I think D.A. Carson expressed it well when he said, the contrast itself turns not on raw numbers, but on the power and clarity that mushroom after the eschatological hinge has swung and the new day has dawned. The point is that with the accomplishment of redemption in Christ following his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, there was a decisive shift. The gospel goes out now with the power and clarity with which it did not go forth prior to Jesus' glorification. Jesus said, the same works you will do, greater works you will do, because I go to the Father. And then connected with that is what follows in verses 13 and 14. Where Jesus promises to answer prayer. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, in these words, in verses 13 and 14, we ought to observe a few things. And the first is that our, that our requests in prayer ought to be asked in the name of Jesus. And... 
When we speak of praying in the name of Jesus, we need to be clear what we're not talking about. We're not talking about a magical incantation tacked on to the end of our prayers, using the magic word, so to speak, as if all were required for a prayer to be answered and accepted to God was just to say, in Jesus' name, amen. Asked in the name of Jesus, there. Condition fulfilled. Now, give me the answer. That is not what Jesus is promising here. To pray in Jesus' name is to implicitly acknowledge that we are completely unworthy for God to answer our prayers based on our own merits or based on what we deserve of ourselves. We deserve nothing good from God's hand. And so if I were to pray to God in the name of Neil Jackson, there would be no reason for God to hear me. And there would be no reason for God to answer me. Neil is a sinner. Neil is not an object of faith. Neil is not a mediator. This all changes, though, when we come to Christ in faith and ask in the name of Jesus. When we ask in the name of Jesus, we are asking that the things we request would be granted to us for Jesus' sake. We are coming to God on the basis of the merits of Jesus, the basis of the good things that Christ has won for us by his death and resurrection. We are relying upon Jesus as our only mediator, as the only way by which we can come to God in prayer. This is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, he said, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will we? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And in those words, Jesus is obviously drawing an analogy between the way in which human fathers treat the requests of their children and the way in which God responds to the requests of those who are his children. But let's take a step back and ask, how is it that we become children of God so that we can truly call upon God as our Father in the fullest sense of the word? Well, it's through Christ that we become the children of God, even as we find in John 1, that as many as received him, to them he gave, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The point, then, is that since we only become the children of God through faith in Christ, and therefore have access to him as Father, the only proper way to come to God is in the name of Jesus, relying on Christ as the one by whom we have access to the Father, relying on Christ's merits and his grace and mediation for us. I remember seeing an old black and white movie in which an officer of the law was trying to gain residence to uh, entry to a residence, and he was, he was knocking on the door, and, and maybe you can hear it. He says, open the door in the name of the law. And in saying that, the officer wasn't seeking to gain entry based upon himself. He was seeking entry based upon the law, which had given him authority to go after criminals. And in the same way, when we come to God in prayer, we come not of ourselves, as though we were sufficient in ourselves to claim anything before God, but rather we come in the name of Christ. We come in the name of the one who has gone before us to prepare a place for us. 
Indeed, we must not only uh, put forth our prayers in the name of Jesus, we must live all of our life in the name of Jesus. And so Paul says in Colossians 3.17 that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, through him to God the Father. And this is to do all that we do under Christ's authority and in the strength that he provides and ultimately with an eye to Christ's glory. We must ask in the name of Jesus when we pray. And the second thing that we ought to observe here is that these words of Jesus are conditional. Again, just tacking on that phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. It's not a magical incantation that guarantees that our requests will be answered. These words of Jesus in verses 13 and 14 are conditional. And the first thing that we need to notice in this respect is that Jesus is not speaking here to the world. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who know him, those who believe in him, and who follow him. And this ties in already with what we have seen about praying in the name of Jesus, that it means to come to God through faith in Christ, not merely to take the name of Jesus on our lips and simultaneously refuse to obey him and follow him. A person who merely takes the name of Jesus on his lips and does nothing more should expect nothing from God in prayer. We find in Psalm 66, 18 that the psalmist said, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And James says in James 4, 3, that you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so we need to understand that when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is not a, a blank check or a magic lamp so that we can get whatever we want. He says that he will answer these prayers so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. Needless to say, if the request that we make is evil, or tends toward evil, or will result in us doing evil, the request will not be granted, because God is not glorified by evil. As Augustine put it, when evil becomes our delight, and what is good, the reverse, we ought to be entreating God rather to win us back to the love of good rather than to grant us evil. If evil is in our hearts and evil is what we want, we need to be asking God to take that away rather than to give us the evil thing that we are craving for at the moment. So Jesus is speaking here to believers, and implicit in that is the understanding that we turn from our sins and walk with him in faith. He says in John fifteen seven, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. For you. Our prayers are answered if we abide in Him, and He abides in us. Or we find in 1 John 3:22, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Our prayers are answered when we keep the commandments of God, when we do those things that are pleasing in His sight, even when we have those things that are pleasing in His sight in our hearts before we ask and make requests in prayer. And we read in our unison reading today, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, that this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. Prayers are answered if they are asked in accordance with the will of God. We're told in Psalm 84.12 that the Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And this is important for us to remember when we go to the Lord in prayer, that the Lord gives good things to his people and does not withhold good. But sometimes we ask for things that seem good to us, and in God's estimation, which is the true estimation of things, these things would not be good for us. The Lord knows better. Surely Paul thought that he was asking for something good when he asked for that messenger of Satan to be taken away from him in 2 Corinthians 12. Yet, as good as that may have been, the Lord had something better in mind for Paul. And I don't know what all the Lord was, was doing there in the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians 12 gives us, a, gives us a pretty good window into that. But think of how much encouragement has come to the church down through the ages because we have seen the lesson that Paul learned from that. He wanted that messenger of Satan to be taken away from him, but the Lord said that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Certainly that was good for Paul, for his power to be made perfect in weakness, and for him to boast in his weaknesses and in his inabilities and incapacities and so forth, so that when he is weak, then he would be strong, because Christ's power would rest upon him and How much of a benefit has this been for Christians throughout the ages? That that was Paul's experience. And so we can look to the word of God in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12 and draw strength and encouragement from this. The Lord gives grace and glory and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Maybe he withholds a good thing in order to give another good thing, an actually better thing. And moreover, we're taught in scripture that our prayers must be persistent. That was the point of the parable of the unjust judge in the beginning of Luke chapter 18 to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes, perhaps, the reason we have not received the good that we have asked for in prayer may be that we have not yet persevered long enough in prayer for that good thing. So in Colossians 4.2, we're called to be devoted to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're commanded to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And James commends to us the example of Elijah when he says, James 5, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the earth poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The point is that we need to understand the words of verses 13 and 14 within the overall framework of what Scripture teaches us about prayer and what we can expect from God in regard to answering our prayer. But we need to notice here in the text also that Jesus not only asks, uh, commands us to ask in his name, he also tells us to ask him. And so, look there in verse 14. He says, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Our prayers are to be directed towards Him. Now, it is certainly good and right to direct our prayers to God the Father. Jesus Himself taught us to pray this way in the Lord's Prayer. But here, our Lord teaches us that it is also acceptable to pray to Him. If you ask me 
anything in my name, I will do it. And notice also that he doesn't say that the Father will do it, but he says that he will do it. We must pray in his name, which is to pray in his sake and through his mediation. We must pray to Christ himself, and he himself will answer us. And if Christ himself answers us, then we can be sure that the Father is answering us as well, since the Father, abiding in Christ, does his works, as we saw up in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 10 earlier. Now, one minister from olden times summed up the, the promise uh, that, is, that is given to us here in this way. He says, In this sense, therefore, the words are to be understood, and this promise is always fulfilled. If any of Christ's faithful servants and disciples, living in his true faith and fear, if they shall heartily, earnestly, and frequently ask anything of Almighty God that is really good for them, and if they ask in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, trusting on him and him alone for it, and in the use of proper means, then he will certainly do it. He will either do that very thing they ask, or something that is better for them, so that they shall never pray in vain. So brothers and sisters, in light of that, will you pray? Will you pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that Jesus may be honored as your mediator, and the one in whom you trust Will you pray in Jesus' name that he may answer your request and thus that the Father may be glorified in the Son? Will you come to Jesus Christ himself in prayer and pray to him that he may thus be shown to be your God and honored by you just as you would honor the Father as your God by coming to him in prayer? Will you bring your requests to him? Not frivolous requests as unto a magic lamp, but earnest requests for good things, things which are good according to the will and word of God. Will you bring your requests to Jesus, requests for those kinds of things which we know are in accordance with his will? Now, what are those kinds of things that meet that criteria, you may ask? What kinds of things should we ask for? Think about the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. We can pray that God's name would be holy in our midst and in our own heart. Your kingdom come. We can pray that Christ's kingdom here in this world would be advanced, and that the powers of darkness would be defeated, and that Christ would come again, that truly his kingdom would come in the fullest sense when he returns to earth. We can pray for the ministry of the gospel here and around the world. You can pray for evangelism. Paul was not shy in his letters to the churches to ask the churches to pray for him and for his witness. He asked for prayer for boldness, that he might speak the word as he should. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that both you yourself and all of God's people would do God's will, that you would obey him and serve him faithfully, and that the rest of God's people would do this as well. Give us this day our daily bread. Ask God to provide for your daily needs, to sustain you, to give you strength. And then give thanks to God for that provision. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ask for forgiveness, for cleansing through the blood of Christ and the full understanding that you are required to forgive others as well. Obviously, when we first become Christians, we receive the great gift of forgiveness. But as we saw back in John 13, we ought to be continually coming to Jesus, 
Jesus said that he who has had a bath needs only to have his feet washed. So we need to keep coming to Jesus and asking for forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray that God would keep you and others from temptation and will give you victory over every evil and sin that you're confronted with when you are tempted by it. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Obviously, those are are general requests, and a lot of particular things fall under those big umbrellas. But we know that those requests are good. The things that are asked for them are good, and we can be sure that they are in accordance with the will of God, and that if we ask God to do those things for us in the name of Jesus, or if we ask Jesus Christ our Lord to do those things for us in his own name, we know that he will answer us and he will work in those regards as will be most expedient for us. And in regard to more specific requests about particular things that that we want or that we think would be good for us, we can feel free to, to make them, but we must do so with an open hand allowing the Lord to act as would be best for us, trusting that the judge of all the earth will certainly do what is right. That's the way Paul asked when he asked for that messenger of Satan to be taken away from him, 2 Corinthians 12. He, he wanted it. He earnestly wanted it. He said he pleaded with the Lord three times. But yet, nevertheless, he, he trusted God. And, and when the Lord said that he was not going to, he accepted the Lord's answer and moved on in joy and rejoiced in the Lord Even though he did not receive the particular request that he had granted, he trusted that God was working for his good according to his will. And so, brothers and sisters, believe these words of Christ. Believe that he is one with the Father and pray to him, believing that he will answer the prayers of those who come to him in the way that he has taught us. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, that we uh, would not be sluggish and slow to come to you in prayer, to present our requests to our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would stir us up, that we would come, that we would come in confidence, knowing that you give good things to your children. And Lord, we ask that you would help our hearts, that they would be full of desires for good things, not good things according to earthly standards, not good things according to what we think is best, us doing what is right in our own eyes. Lord, we ask that you would conform our hearts and our minds and our desires to your will. We'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that the things that we may ask for would be those things which you would be pleased to grant to us. We praise you for your greatness and your kindness. We praise you for the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is in you and you are in him. We praise you. Now for the unity that we have with you through Christ, that he is in us, that we abide in him as branches abide in the vine. Father, we give praise to you for your great love and great kindness to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.